What's past is prologue, Vapor is setting the stage for a whole new internet. Uncovering the electric scooter rage in U.S. cities. Metals are jostling for position to be a part of the next wave of battery technology. Moody suggests that autonomous vehicle startups have inherent disadvantages. IBM announces blockchain-based food safety network widely available across the industry. Food supply chains need an economic incentive to adopt blockchain. And finally, we do five good minutes with William Kerr of Edge Logistics, followed by a roundup of third quarter earnings so far. I'm JP. And I'm Chad. And we discuss all these issues and more on this week's episode of What the Truck. Oh my God, I can't believe I made it through that intro. (laughs) It's a lot. Uh, Overall, for our listeners, uh, just know that we are um, focusing on technology for most of these articles with a brief overview of some highlights of earnings, such as we've heard so far this week. Um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, what, you, what you drinking, dare I ask? Bell's Too Hearted. Bell's Too Hearted Comfort Beer for JP. Um, what, what you got there, Chad? Shout out to production guru Barry Carpenter, who has set me up with a Trim Tab IPA, which, um, you know, when you've been given a beer, it tastes all the better. Let's just put it that way. Free beer is, is good, good beer. beer. Um Barry, you know, is still in retirement from What the Truck, so He's we're actually really silent. We're right actually now. joined by our, you know, our new newest creative, Layla, is uh, Layla producing this for us in the building, in the room. All right, great to have you here, Layla, and uh, and and uh, thanks for bearing with us as we um, get through um, all of these headlines. Now, li- ladies and gentlemen, today we are gonna like we've got a new cadence coming on for this episode. We are gonna hit these headlines, and we're gonna hit them hard, we're gonna hit them fast, and we're gonna hit them high, and we're gonna hit them low. <laughs> <laughs> so the very first one we're gonna talk yeah, about here. Yeah, tell is, us about Vapor. What is this? A blockchain company? Is it a technology company? What are they? How are they making a whole new internet? Well, you know, um, today when it comes to companies and experts riding the hype train, it's often associated with blockchain solutions that really aren't ready to solve much of anything. Right. Uh, some need to get their crypto tokens all in a row first. Uh, others aren't sure whether they want to be public or private or a little bit of both. And it's not just blockchain solutions. It's everything related to these so-called smart cities. From all the media attention, you might think that these utopian meccas already exist, JP. And the people that inhabit them are leading dream lives among their IoT devices in the babbling brooks of their gig economies. But we see a lot... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we see a lot of ambitious plans. We hear a lot of talk. But you know what? At this, this is the thing I like about the Kinetic Edge stuff. It's like, unassumingly, some of the best laid plans are literally being laid down one data center at a time. They're setting them up in these clusters so there's redundancy. And it's just simply going to be this kind of unheralded infrastructure that like moves our autonomous vehicles and our final mile delivery applications and all of these IoT solutions. And, and you know, and it's it's it gets technical. It's technical stuff. There, you know, there are things called VLANs um, that you know they, they, they set up virtual local area networks. Very nice, and, and they and they they create these. Um, you know, they 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 basically make them. They're remotely operable, highly redundant, highly secure. So just to just to back up and slow down yeah. for a second. Okay. Um, Vapor weren't they the company that was starting off building sort of 
remote air traffic and remote and automated air traffic control towers for autonomous drones air yeah i think i mean kind of like essentially like solving the problem of like like if you want to have a drone delivery in a city with tall buildings and most drones now need line of sight communications to be able to navigate you have to build a network of these places but it sounds like what you're saying is that they're now diversifying into a whole sort of portfolio of smart city solutions and building these little black boxes that can be all over a city, collecting all manner of data, generating insights, communicating with, you know, passengers of vehicles or corporations or, they, you know, government they, agencies. They, uh, they, they began, they said they began by considering themselves, they were a vendor of entry infrastructure, and they now consider themselves an edge native co-location company. Yeah, that, um, yeah. So yeah, so if that's if that's what you were talking about, and so the, they still are working with dealing with drones, which are incredibly complex. Right, but definitely like moving forward in terms of uh, the regulatory stuff. I mean, if if we want to go back to the reauthorization of the FAA bill that um, just passed, you know, now like I think you know originally the FAA was opposed to drones. Um, uh, Elaine Chow, oh, yeah. the Secretary they shut of Transportation. Down, excitement down real fast well, about well, a year they, ago. Well, they tried to, but then Trump and Chow went, did an, a runaround of the FAA, and now um, Congress is basically forcing the FAA to create regulations for legal commercial drone delivery. So I think that's a huge plus for Vapor. But it's interesting. I mean, it's cool that they're talking about this in terms of like edge computing, which is another like kind of hot topic. Yeah. And that's basically the idea that. Okay, cloud computing was great. It replaced, it, it allowed um, small companies, especially, and individuals, it gave them access to huge amounts of computing power for really cheap. But it did so by centralizing all the computing power in these massive server farms that, you know, uh, you know, are net, you know being built you know, by yeah, Amazon. Cloud, cloud is like a step in this direction. But it's but then, like an adjacent possible step, which is creating the decentralization opportunities that they're now creating. Yeah, exactly. And so but the what we're starting to see with cloud computing is that you need to pay for the server space. You need a lot of fucking bandwidth to to move back and forth, have. you know, between the server and the people who are using the data and you you end up creating these vast data lakes where Information is pouring in from all these places all into one thing, and then you have to hire people to figure out what to do with the data. So the premise of edge computing is you move – you decentralize computing power again. So more of the computing, more of the data collection, more of the aggregation, more of the analysis, more of the recommendations are going to happen on devices – on the what they call the edge of the internet, which is essentially where the internet interacts with the physical world. So think about like telematics on trucks, uh, you know, smart yeah. smart roads. You know, and the, when we talk about decentralization, one of the things, that, rather than it being up in some like gigantic uh, cloud, um, you know, so it, w- this becomes very regionalized, where you you have your hardware, your you know your your cha- your six cylindrical chambers, say um, of a vapor chamber, uh, and and you you like have these systems that are regional and that can be accessed much much more quickly as well. And so it is, it's not only a hardware thing; it is also a a software 
play. Um, right, they, right. they don't really want to specifically call it blockchain, but it is um, a powerful software that is, that you know is used alongside. It takes a lot to coordinate all this. Right. Um, but, but the idea is of that the amount of um, data, the idea is that instead of having a million devices all dumping data into one central server that then has to be analyzed and processed and called up by a human, right. you have these devices doing all the work themselves and only giving actionable insights to people when it's necessary. And to me, this is like an unheralded aspect of the future coming up. So, okay, so we just spent several minutes on that. That was worth the time. But now moving on to the electric scooter rage that's apparently happening in U.S. metropolitan cities. And do you you know what's going on with this? I think that Um, people are... So these um, unicorn startups, Bird is one... What's what, uh, I can't remember the name of the other one. Uh, Vishnu wrote the story, but and Lime Bird and Lime, they are. It's basically like it's basically like a bike sharing or a bike rental thing, except they're electric scooters, and they people leave them. They're at, awesome. I mean, they were all over the place. I was just down ta- just down in Atlanta this very week at the uh, Venture Atlanta uh, conference, which is a cool conference, by the way. Venture Atlanta. Check out our coverage of that event. But um, so th- so there's these random scooters like all like all over the place, you know, and you can just hop on a bird scooter. And go wherever you want for a couple of bucks and leave the scooter wherever you want. It's amazing. I love it. It's like it's it's transformative. But apparently some people don't like somebody it. somewhere is getting angry that these I think things it's mostly and I've actually heard this from one of my friends who lives in San Francisco. It's mostly like uh, leftists on the West Coast who, you know, they, they'll like vandalize the scooters. They'll break them. They, and they'll r- scrawl messages like, you know, Portland is not your corporate playground. Like, I guess like, it pisses people off, first of all, that everyone's they leaving the They say that in San Francisco? In, in, Port- Portland's in, not your... No, pl- they I'm say just that, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I get it. Um, yeah. um, so, well, so, but, like, okay. I think people leave the scooters everywhere, which makes people mad. They drive them on the sidewalks, which, you know, offends pedestrians. Um, you know, I, I don't really... What, what else contributes to... The rage against electric well, scooters. Well, apparently they they don't always follow the traffic laws. According to the article, too, the companies aren't doing a very good job of modifying whether or not you're 18, you know, uh, or have a driver's license. And so teenagers are kind of a problem um, with them. And you know, they're trying to do various things of fines and you know, the companies basically the companies it's the wild west. The companies aren't being super regulated about it. And honestly, I dig it. I'm sorry that there's a problem and pedestrians are mad, but um, I'm not. I'm a happy pedestrian and I want to keep disrupting things and I want to get around easy and in these various <laughs> disrupting walking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I suppose wow. so. Disru- disrupting walking for many, many miles in a in an unfamiliar environment. But so, um, so apparently there's problems. But um, I'm digging the disruption. How about you? How do you feel about it? Um, I've never ridden on one, and I like walking. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I don't really have you like. Wa- I, I mean, don't really I have like walking, man. 
You know, I don't, it's nothing against walking. <laughs> but, I mean, I like walking as a slow way to appreciate a city as opposed to flitting uh, around on flitting. one of these these newfangled electric scooters. <laughs> but, I mean, uh-huh. I would be kind of interested to see what happens. You know, I'm, I'm thinking especially about, um, I think, was it your article about the sort of uh, crashing, the bursting bubble of... Um, Chinese bike sharing. No, I think that was Vision. That was also Vision. Yeah. Yeah. So he's written a lot about like urban mobility, but like, and those were some legit problems. But we don't have time to cover that right now. We don't have time to cover it. But I just wonder what happens when these scooters start breaking. What happens when there's too many of them? What happens when people when they get you know when they all start piling up in the same sorts of places? How do you redistribute the assets and make them? where they're supposed to be to make sure they're being utilized correctly. But you know, you, none of these companies have to be profitable yet. And so they're all just, yeah, kind of, like you said, things. it's the wild west. So I'll, I'll be interested to see where the space goes. Lo- I love it when some IOT solutions actually do improve my life though. And I'm not just talking in general about some future utopian thing, the digital and the physical world actually coming together. It's, it's just amazing. Um, uh, metals, buddy. Like, le- like what about metals? Like, <laughs> okay. So, the big well, we can keep this kind of short. It's a little compl- complicated. Um, John Kingston wrote the article on FreightWaves.com. If you guys are interested, he covered strategic metals for a long time um, at Platts and and at the the Metals Bulletin. Um, so the chemistry of individual batteries create different strengths and weaknesses. There's yeah, a, there's yeah. a lot of them. So this is all about this is all about emerging battery technology, uh, chemistries that are under development. And what that means for the relative balance between supply and demand for different metals, particularly cobalt and lithium. And, and there's also manganese. There's, yes, manganese and nickel as well. Uh, and uh, it says, you know, he said, while lithium iron phosphate batteries can be um, preferred for storage in larger vehicles, um, there's also those, these trade-offs for cost and density. But overall, you and know. It's, 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 yeah. it's interesting. It's complicated because neither the demand nor the supply is going to be elastic. And what I mean by that is battery technology, battery chemistries take about 10 years to develop and implement. And From to, the beginning it, of understanding the nascent technology to getting it to up production. to full so production. It's a very long cycle. Um, not necessarily particularly responsive to, for example, commodity prices, like how much do these metals actually cost. So you have to spend a lot of money on R&D. It's a risk, that sort of thing. It takes a long time to set up a supply chain um, and, For a number and of reasons. Metals. And on the on the demand side, it, uh, mining infrastructure also takes a very long time to come online. You can't just spin up a cobalt mine because demand is peaking. It takes you know hundreds of millions of dollars of investment and many many years. And there's mul- there's 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 a multitude of factors that people are considering, like whether or not like well, first of all, they're constantly trying to improve the technology. So what will the technology sort of discover? That's like an X factor. Right. There's also what will uh, on the sort of geopolitical sphere, ha- you know, what what's taking place there? Like right. you know, there's a, a the huge, cobalt in 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 West Africa, huge supply being... of lithium, in, but it's in Chile, Argentina, China, and Australia. Um, so it's limited in terms of access there. There's also what will be the policy of given governments to, you know, incentivize things. Also, what will just like if somebody, if some gigantic um, OEM wants to start like producing um, and, and setting in stone what they're going to be using, how will that affect exactly. things? And so right now, 
weirdly, even though um, Cobalt Demand is, uh, uh, sorry, so it is projected that in the very near future, electric vehicles will need about twice as much cobalt as is being produced worldwide for every industry right now. Oh, wow. Yet, we are still in a sort of medium-term oversupply in cobalt. And what that means is if there's an oversupply of cobalt, the price is low, which means that cobalt miners are not building more mines because the price is too low already. And so there's going to be a a supply crunch. And I think think just the takeaway, and we can move on after this, but the takeaway is that when you have unresponsive supply – you have unresponsive demand factors. You're going to get a very, very turbulent commodities market. And and that is um, one of our takeaways from the article. Great coverage of that interesting story. Um, another, um, uh, you know, it's in some ways. Oh, this is very related. Yeah. Not 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 a surprising story, but it's certainly yeah related to Moody's, as you wrote, um, suggests that. Um, you know, autonomous vehicle startups have inherent disadvantages. Um, no shock here. I guess, you know, maybe it's a shock that, like, if you were if you were around in 2014 and 15 and expecting this huge thing happen, and you invested in the autonomous uh, startups, you might, at this point, you might have felt like you were in for a little bit of a rude awakening. There's a lot right. of ways that technology is, is um, developing and uh, a lot of good investments with technology right now. But, boy, has autonomous hit some... Uh, some Let's hit a wall. some challenges hit a wall. headwinds. Yeah, so yeah, tell us about it. Okay, so Tesla deactivated its autopilot feature just last month, which is su- like I, that surprised yeah. me well, to to read about. I mean, I know yeah. they're having a lot of troubles, but wow. Yeah, Waymo is getting in near weekly crashes in its Arizona testing locations. Right. Um, Uber Freight shut down its autonomous truck project. Um, it's and while People, they're they're advancing with their they're advancing, you know, but it's very their, their, very um, difficult. It's very hard. Here's here's the thing. Here's why startups are not just boiled down. Why startups aren't good at for autonomous vehicles, and why they probably won't be able to successfully bring the technology to market. It's because for most technology startups, you release a minimum viable product into the market. You start generating revenue off of it. And then you improve it incrementally and you improve it really quickly over the next couple of releases. It improves dramatically. And then it re- it's, it's, it's an S-curve. At the beginning, it doesn't improve that much. Then it improves a lot. Then it stabilizes, right? Yeah. Um, so if you think about something like a mobile phone, when they first started coming out, they weren't that great. They got really good really rapidly. And now we have like a standard uh, consumer experience that everyone expects. The problem with an autonomous vehicle is you can't release an autonomous vehicle that is kind of shitty like it has to be almost <laughs> it has to be almost perfect for for it to be safe at all right and like we've even seen from like the accidents that uber has had for example that even the trained paid contractors who are meant to be the safety drivers still have a very difficult time um, maintaining the uh you know proper amount of attention whether that's you know, keeping their eyes on the road or keeping their hands on the wheel. And so we can't expect consumers to sort of be able to um, operate a half-autonomous vehicle 
correctly. People don't operate their normal cars the way they're designed. And yet, before we get too discouraged, overall, Moody's is still saying that, yes, it's true, by technology standards, this is slow, but but it will, the radical evolution of autonomous driving will change over the next five years. Yes. It, but, so it's but, not a decade. But the action isn't going to come from startups. It's going to come from very large incumbents, like literally... SoftBank, SoftBank dumping billions of dollars into a, a joint venture between Honda and GM. These are the companies that have the managerial sophistication to orchestrate a bunch of uh, complex technologies together. They have the capital to ride out this really long and unpredictable R&D cycle. Yeah. And they can once they hit the solution, they can manufacture it at scale. And Moody's really like you know Moody's the credit rating agency really likes the idea of how joint ventures share the risk and spread it across. This is why startups that are trying to do the whole thing by themselves are taking on all of the risk and they don't you know you know what I mean that that's that's the issue and so that's yeah. why I kind of like said that um you know the sort of subtext of the Moody's piece it was really about GM and Honda but the subtext is that the startups have inherent disadvantages. What's what's interesting is um Ike, you know, just uh, IKE just just announced their presence on the startup scene with um, you know, in a in a um in a joint venture with a sort of a delivery um, company and they, they made their big press release announcement and we, we published it quickly just to get the news out and share the love with them, but then when I followed up with them and asked them some of the specific questions, it's been crickets. Interesting. When I, I wonder, I wonder if it's because some of these answers, uh, questions are hard to answer at this point. A couple of quick stories that we also wanted to touch on is IBM finally came out and talked about well, um, their blockchain-based food safety network, the Food Trust Network. Yeah, and uh, not a lot of news here. Uh, it's everything that we already knew what they were doing with Walmart. Um, other than just they really wanted to emphasize IBM's messaging is that they really wanted to emphasize that. Blockchain. They really wanted to separate it from cryptocurrency. Right. They really wanted to emphasize the idea of distributing with the decentralized ledger and how this is overall going to be good for blockchain um, right. and the future of food safety, specifically in this case. Um, and then, as um, shortly thereafter, um, Vish- Vishnu uh, covered the um, with an article: food supply chains need an economic incentive to adopt blockchain. And this was interesting to me. He talked to um, an analyst who said, um, you know, a couple of really important things uh, need to be happening um, for blockchain to really become widespread. Um, and and those were um, they need financial incentive. And they need a um, an actual auditing. Um, they need an actual auditing process, like where the, the, it could be validated in um, you know a a reliable way, which makes a lot of sense. You know, right? Because like, what get is what get is uh, yeah. cryptographically securing immutable records if there's no way to like read them. Yeah, if just some random or just so, well, rather than rather than even if they can. Not, not just if they can read them, but if just like Billy Bob out on the farm just puts it into the ledger that, yes, this, this, this oh, letter from see, Yuma, see, Arizona is, um, right. is from here. You know, there's, I mean, okay. 
All right, well, it came from there. At least we know that. But was it still tainted? You know, or so, has it been checked? What's the validation process that makes right. sense? And the data entry process, so like, like garbage yeah, in, garbage out. In it's it's uh, so it's but also I mean the technology is not the hard part here. It is the it's the um, it's the hard the, part is is incentivizing companies exactly. Why would you want to expose yourself? Why do you want to take on the liability? Why do you want to basically put all of your internal operations, all of your risk, all of your mistakes in an immutable record that anyone can read? Like companies have to have a really powerful economic incentive, like Vishnu says, to become more transparent. Um, You know, I think that obviously Walmart can force its leafy green suppliers to use this technology, which is what, what they did. For other verticals, and essentially other, and, and IBM as well. I mean, in a partnership of two. Yeah, know, but yeah, but but it was, the leverage is coming from Walmart saying, if you want to bring, if you want us to sell your cabbage, you must use this. Yeah, and, that's and that's that, a powerful economic incentive. Yeah, <laughs> another one, you know, um, I think eventually, you know, and they're they're, I think Walmart's the second largest grocer in the in the U.S. after Kroger. Um, okay. So it's you know that's that's a big deal. Um, the other economic incentive, I, I just have a hard time imagining this becoming real, but maybe it will, is consumer expectations about pr- the provenance of you know, the, the, the food that they're buying. Like, oh, I, I think it's coming. I mean, is it really? Is I mean, are people? We who, want transparency. I mean, is my mom who you know shops at like Kroger and Aldi and Trader Joe's? Is she going to like? Does she want to look up every piece of food that she buys on the blockchain? She doesn't even know what the blockchain is. No, like, like, but see, remember, you know what no, I mean? no, like, no, you're, okay, now it's like, not the, about the, how the technology works. It's just about using it. And like, what if you could like have a digital display above every single one of your like pieces of produce, and you could just be seeing where it came from or something? Like that's that, it's that, easy. That, it's that could, there. That could be cool, but unless consumers demand it, unless they start preferring. Uh, food, you know, products with the, its history on the blockchain over products that don't. Oh, they are. Oh, they are. This is coming. This okay. is coming. I mean, maybe. It, we'll I see. think it we'll is. See. Just like e-commerce, people have gotten used to like getting their goods, you know, um, in you know overnight and for free. Um, we're 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 gonna want it. We're gonna want to see this. It's all happening, as they say, with it's blockchain. Like, it's, and I just imagine like the, the the grocery run of the future. Me like call it, you know, you know, texting an order to the shipped driver and be like, hey, can you make sure that the apples <laughs> that you bought pick up have never been above like seventy five degrees? Uh, and you know, uh, yeah, the Salinas Valley would be ideal. You, you don't have to like actually ask that of your shipped driver. You just can see it all documented on your order. Yeah, you're gonna prefer the stuff that's traced okay. rather than the stuff that's not. All right. Um, I'm, I'm being the advocate here for blockchain um, happening soon. All right, and now we have five good minutes. With William Kerr, president of Edge Logistics, or we're uh, doing a flashback back to the uh, McLeod User Conference um, in Birmingham. And here's one of our more interesting interviews. Take it away.
All right, well, hey, welcome back uh, to another exciting five good minutes segment. We are coming live to you from the McLeod UC 2018, and we are visited by none other than William Kerr of Edge Logistics. The president of Edge Logistics, in fact. Whoa. Thanks for stopping by, William. Are you ready to play five good minutes? I am. Thanks for having me. All right. Ready or not, here we go. So um, just tell us a little bit about what Edge Logistics does and um, what role you think technology plays in broker productivity. Uh, well, we're a full truckload broker for the most part. And, uh, you know, the technology has really allowed our individual brokers to accomplish more and more and more every year. Um, when I first started in the business, uh, you know, 10 loads a day, 11 loads a day was, was a pretty great number for, you know, a carrier rep. To, to execute, right. you know, to pick up and deliver yeah. each day. And now we're seeing, you know, 20, 25, you know, some of my top brokers are doing, you know, 50 plus loads a day. Wow. And uh, the main reason for that is the technology is a, you're able to stay organized and, you know, eliminate time-wasting behaviors. Awesome. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Edge chose to um, go with McLeod's TMS or with Power Broker? Uh, what was that decision process like and how has it played out? Um, well, we first started on Keypoint TMS, which is a, you know, a DAT product, and that was really great when we were very small. But once we started having multiple offices, working off the same load board, and multiple salespeople, you know, running different accounts, um, it, it became somewhat unmanageable. And McLeod does a great job of allowing everybody to work in the system and having, having communication occur in the system rather than having to use you know, emails, phone calls, and that sort of thing within the company. Uh, so that was the main reason. The reason why we chose it was more of, uh, you know, looking at some of their success stories uh, in the space, like, you know, AFN and Global Trans and Load Delivered and some other some other great uh, great brokers who have come up in the last 10, 10 years or so and, uh, you know, really had McLeod be a big, uh, a big right. part of that. Right. Um, we, you were at the uh, Power Broker update session. What, what, what are you guys like looking for? What, what are you guys really anticipating? What, what, what moves the needle um, in terms of additional features uh, for Edge? Uh, the biggest thing is eliminating repetitive processes. Uh, we want to do everything once. We want to do it correctly. Uh, we want to have less errors and you know less multiple people touching the same thing. Um, whether that's dispatching, whether that's quoting, you know, whether that's billing. Um, you know, all, all of these streamlined processes that are coming out with, you know, being able to do multiple aspects of the system on one screen and not having to open windows to make edits and that, and that sort of thing are really going to help. You know, we only have a certain amount of time in the day uh, and, you know, we could book as much freight as possible in that amount of time. But anything we could do to, to save a, a second here, a second there um, really helps over the course of a month, a year, you know, whatever. One of the things we're seeing with some of the uh, AI stuff is an interesting thing is it's still about relationships. It's still a relationship business. Do you see do you see like the improvements in communication uh, with the, the stuff you guys are using? Is it how does that work one way or the other? Well, ultimately, it just comes down to picking up and delivering loads on time. Um, and I think we could do you know if if you pick up and deliver on time, then communication <laughs> you know is kind of, it kind of speaks for itself. You know, uh, yeah. you know, communication is is really important in the event of you know something going wrong. Um, but for the most part, our customers just want it to get done, and yeah. we find that you know if a customer gives you one order and you pick it up and deliver it on time, we're going to give you two more. 
get those ones done, they're going to give you 10 more. Get those ones done, they'll give you 100 more. And it's just all about um, your service levels. And however we get there, uh, however we get it done, it is, you know, the technology, uh, you know, talent, uh, communication, customer service, all those things come into play. But really what it comes down to is just performance. The bottom line. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one more question. Um, this is kind of on my mind because we just saw uh, John Larkin from Stiefel talking about mm-hmm. trends in transportation. But what do you, um, what, what does the freight market look like from your guys' perspective right now? What are the challenges um, for brokerage, you know, moving into the back half of 2018? Um, we're, we're seeing a very positive uh, outlook from from new bit for new business. Uh, it, it's never been this you know manageable to get in front of new customers. I think everybody's looking for a new solution. Everybody wants to see what everybody else is doing, uh, and and I think that you know a lot of that has swung the broker's way lately yeah. Uh, yeah. through you know great success stories, through major acquisitions, through you know the emergence of new technology, and uh, you know all these companies in Chicago and other, other places really, really growing rapidly. Um, and yeah. Awesome, dude. You, well said. You snuck in there right Oh, I got it. Right. Yeah. Congratulations. I love you. Thank you. Pound bing, it. bing, bing, bing. All right. Great to have you here. Good yeah. job, man. Yeah, thanks a lot. No problem. Okay, and now we are back to cover the scintillating earnings calls of the week. <laughs> Chad hates talking about earnings calls. No, so, they, so. I mean, they, they, <laughs> they, they, they provide insights for us. Okay, yeah. I mean, um, I think we'll, we'll, we can start off with CSX. Uh, they did their call uh, Tuesday night after trading closed. You know, Jim Foote, you know, this was um, the railroad that Hunter Harrison was running when he died. Uh, in uh, December of 2017, um, Jim Foote uh, is running it now, still sort of in uh, middle innings of implementing precision scheduled railroading, but they brought the OR down to 58.7%, um, expenses, cutting expenses down. Um, I think they're... Uh, Foot said that CSX's earnings were boosted by uh, strong coal demand, and that's really um, the export market for thermal coal, not necessarily metallurgical coal, but coal for you know burning and generating electricity. Um, the other thing that I would notice is that you know the intermodal intermo- intermodal growth is anemic. Uh, they're still working on that network. The service is really bad. Uh, I don't think Foot is particularly interested in intermodal volumes, um, from what we've heard from recent comments he's made. And uh, you know, I think the on-time delivery uh, percentage for intermodal is like sixty-four percent. And if you think about intermodal as the kind of railroad railroad uh, freight that competes with truckload, and truckload is you know high, you know ninety-eight, ninety-nine percent on time. Like it's. They don't. They. I don't know how much he, he. I don't know how much CSX cares about intermodal. I'm not convinced. But they're saying that they want to. That, I mean, that's part of the narrative. They're right? saying that's that they the want to grow. Step. It. They're wanting to take their slice of the pie back from Shrikers. Yeah, and they say they say that, but they're not. Okay. You know, they're not doing it. Okay. So, um, and uh, JP JB Hunt's earnings beat estimates thanks to better brokerage and truckload uh, businesses. 
Um, they've, um, you know, the Arkansas-based company reported a net income of $131 million for the third quarter, a 31% rise from a year earlier. Um, is there any uh, is there any but to this story? Is it is um, it, is it, is it I think all, they, all good news? Um, when you talk about eastbound um, intermodal volumes from the West Coast, uh, they were they they had some interesting color on the sort of the shape of peaks of the summer surge. It came a lot earlier this year. It was sort of bunched up in the in the in the front half, um, dropped off in September, yeah. uh, August and September started coming back again um end of september that that was pretty interesting um we we continue to see how the increased pressure on shippers and transportation companies and you know the the strains on the supply chain are um kind of shaping and massaging those those surges in freight that that, that, to me that's pretty interesting right the driver's wages are up 18 percent for them which is higher than what we had seen from the goldman sachs yeah yeah so 12 percent right yeah Uh, but it's aiming to recoup those those costs as you're basically saying through massaging these new shipper contracts that and um you know they have a really sweet deal with bnsf where they they have a revenue sharing arrangement with BNSF, but they essentially get to name their own price. It's this joint service agreement. Um, they get to name their own price. They get the first pick of capacity um, on B on in, you know. And so BNSF services the West Coast ports. Really important to getting um, Asian uh, in, you know exports into the U.S. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, they they have this joint service agreement. It's been contentious though, and they've gotten several lawsuits over it. I think uh, JB Hunt just took like an eighteen million dollar hit, uh, paying back some of the money it owed BNSF um, for the past four years of this deal. But that's one way that um, JB Hunt's able to control its costs is by dumping stuff onto the railroad for really cheap. Maybe they maybe that's how they can afford to pay. Uh, their drivers more than the industry average. Interesting. What do you think about Trump's tariffs uh, wrecking Wabash National's earnings? That's this is really interesting to me. Um, Wabash National is the large. Uh, I don't know if they're the. Lar- I think they're the largest manufacturer of semi trailers. They're the only publicly traded manufacturer of semi trailers in the U.S. Um, and they are very exposed to the cost of steel and aluminum, which is what they build trailers out of. Um, obviously, we know that Trump put a 10% tariff on steel and a 25% tariff on aluminum, yeah. um, driving up the cost of those materials. Now, um, it, what's interesting is that Wabash hedges about 70% of its raw material costs hmm. um, by trading m- metals futures contracts. And they, what they, with the other 30%, what they do is they, inc- they pass it down to their customers um, but it's kind of on, the, on a lag. It's like they do monthly adjustments, but they're getting their money a month late, later. In other words, or they're making up their losses a month later, which works once once the price stabilizes. If the price continues to go up, they see really bad pressure on their margins. And the takeaway from this is that even though truck, uh, sorry, trailer orders, for example, in September were 135 percent year up year over year like we're they're yeah they're, they're doing well in spite of some of these headwinds it seems like with a strong overall market demand for their products well this is the issue they should be having their best year ever mm. they uh you know trailer orders are destroying records right. by like you know 
double, double, double digit percentages. And but but yet Wabash Nationals net earnings have been cut in half from where they were a year ago because of input costs. Um, one of the one of the other things that's really hurting them is that, uh, you know, in this economy, we have very low unemployment. They've had a difficult time sourcing workers for their to build trailers in their plants. Um, therefore, they've had to pay more overtime than they wanted to, which is driving up also labor costs. And so there's a couple, you know, a couple of different headwinds they have. And it's it's almost like, you know, if you can't make really, really good money in a year when everyone is desperate to acquire as many of your products as they possibly can get their hands on, something is kind of wrong with your company. Like, like their net earnings are half of what they were last year, and yet the demand for their product is double of what it was uh, Well, as you year. said from the beginning, they're very exposed to the, the yeah. raw material tariffs. Right, and you, we actually published a chart show that compared – uh, the price of U.S. coil steel futures contracts against Wabash National stock price, and you can see very clearly as the cost of steel goes up that their their company becomes less valuable. Well, how, uh, finally, you you wrote about um, brokerages navigating, um, you know, sort of a quarter four volatility, um, and you did kind of an in depth. Uh, Report uh, with Arrive Logistics. Uh, what what what's your takeaway for here? Yeah, shout out to Arrive. It was really great working with their team um, on this on this piece. But basically, a couple quick takeaways. One is that uh, collaborative relationships between um, shippers and three PLs are becoming vital to moving product at reasonable prices in Q4. Secondly, um, in terms of market conditions the deterioration of spot rates against contract rates. Um, so right now, contra- uh, sorry, spot rates for trucking are at about a 23%, uh, 23 cents per mile discount to contract rates. That's, that's giving brokers a big opportunity because if you think about what brokers do, especially if they have large contracted accounts, they're selling capacity at contract rates and then they're turning around and buying capacity at spot rates. And when the spot rates are falling relative to contract, they're essentially being able to sell high and buy low. And so the more that spread widens, the more potential margin they get and the easier it is to find those spot trucks. So, um, you know, it's a big deal for them. Um, we'll see what happens to rates as we really get into holiday shipping season, you know, next month, um, especially. But right now, I think the, I think most brokerages are sitting pretty. Okay. Uh, well, and that is uh, the takeaways from this week's roundup of headlines. As always, we go into more detail about each of the topics we've talked about today on our website, FreightWaves.com. We will continue to publish this podcast weekly, so be sure to subscribe to What the Truck on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Also, make sure to leave us a review to let us know what you think of our new podcast. And if you're interested in freight economics and finance, come to our Market Waves Conference at the Gaylord Texan Resort and Convention Center in Grapevine, Texas, this November. Visit marketwaves18.com to learn more about this event. That'll do it for today. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week on What What the the truck. Truck.